in this edition of Hoopsology, Justin and Matt are welcome Emmy Award-winning producer and director of Dream On, the story of the 1996 USA women's basketball dream team, Kristen Lapis. Kristen gives her perspective on creating the film and the importance of the 1996 team to not only basketball, but the history of women's sports. Please email your questions to hoopsologypod at gmail.com and follow us on all of our social media platforms. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're available through the handle at Pod. We are a proud member of Underdog Podcast. And now, Kristen Lapis. She is a Emmy Award-winning producer, and her latest project is now available on ESPN+. It is called Dream On, which tells the story of the 1996 U.S. women's dream team. We welcome Kristen Lapis onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Kristen? Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, doing well. Thanks for coming on to the show. And first of all, I just want to just commend you on this documentary, um, just like um, its predecessors on um, the ESPN platform. It is fantastic. I think it's must watch for any basketball fan out there. So I just want to commend you just for just the, the footage and just the, the storytelling. It was really fantastic viewing. Thank you for saying that. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I, I can like I don't get sick of saying this. It was truly a passion project and like a once in a lifetime project to do a film on your childhood idols, and I'll never be able to top it. So, <laughs> so just kind of a you you brought it up. It's, it's a passion project for you. So, I'll, I'll ask, what was kind of the the beginning workings of putting this together, and kind of how long? Can you just walk us through how long did it take you to kind of put it together from start to finish? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. These things definitely don't happen overnight. They kind of evolve um, over years and years, actually. And this one started back in 2018. I was working for ESPN Films and 30 for 30, and the NBA and NBA Entertainment actually approached us, and we have a great working relationship with them. And they were like, listen, we only have um, the abundance of footage that we had for The Last Dance for one other story. And that is uh, the 1996 women's Olympic team. Um, now, mind you, th- uh, the last dance had not come out yet, but obviously it had been. It was in in the process of being worked on. Uh, and and they just said we have 500 hours in our in our library. We've never gone through it, honestly, and nobody's ever done anything with it. And would someone on your team want to kind of comb through these tapes and see if there's something there? And so that was a conversation in 2018. Fast forward to 2020 and the pandemic, and we really started to like reevaluate like the types of stories we're telling and what types of stories we can tell that don't need to be like fully originally shot, right? Like stories that can be really heavily reliant on archival. And, you know, being a huge hoops person growing up, my dad was a, a college basketball coach. I played basketball, um, was very short, so never made it to the college level, but I played in high school, but huge fan of this group of women, like Lisa Leslie Jersey, remember those Olympics very vividly. Um, And I just kept pushing and pushing. And I'm like, this is something that we need to just get our hands on and see if there's something here. And so we ended up having all the tapes sent over to us and began to screen it. And honestly, after like the first night of looking through this footage, I knew that there was something special here. Um, you know, it, like these women in hotel rooms on buses, um, really intimate, um, kind of like revealing footage that 
um, could tell a much bigger story than uh, the 60 games they won that season. Um, and so I put together a presentation of my bosses for like how we could do this. And they commissioned it as a feature length 77 minute film. And so that was March of 2021. And then fast forward six months, I end up interviewing every single woman on that team, Tara Vanderveer, the head coach. And I go back to my bosses at ESPN and I'm like, listen, there is no way in hell that we're going to fit this entire story into 77 minutes. Like you got to make it longer. So kudos to them. They said yes. And um, from the moment that we started filming through um, delivery and air date, it was about 14 months from start to finish. Can you set the tone of the, the 1996 Olympics? It's it's weird because I grew up during that time. I know how important that Olympics was, just not in not only in sports history, just in terms of American sports history, just in it globally as well. And it's weird that like I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm old. I guess I am, but just in terms <laughs> of um, you know the the audience today, they don't have any context of how big that Olympics was, but it was gigantic and really affecting multiple sports. So can you yeah. kind of set the tone as to really how important this Olympics really was and just kind of affecting what we watch today? Absolutely. I mean, you, you said it, it was important on a, on a bunch of different levels for different reasons. Uh, one, it was the Olympics of the, of the female athlete, right? Um, you know, it wasn't just women's basketball, like women's softball was coming on the scene right. for the first time ever. People were really into women's team sports, uh, the soccer team, you know, we had as a culture, as a, you know, as an American society, we had, you know, always rooted on the, you know, and, and felt some sort of way towards the, the ice, the phys figure skaters and the gymnasts and the swimmers, but really the team sports had never had that affinity and that love and, um, kind of you know, seeped into popular culture the way that the women of this Olympics did. And so that was for like one reason why it was, it was really special and it kind of impacted the trajectory of, of female sports um, over the past 25 years. And then, um, you know, it being on American soil in Atlanta, um, you know, it, it was in a city that really embraced diversity, which I think was a really cool thing and um, was something that was celebrated in those Olympics. Um, and then obviously nobody ever anticipated, um, you know, what happened in Centennial Park. And there were just a lot of, you know, there were a lot of things happening off of the court fields, you know what I mean, um, at those Olympics that kind of, but you're right. The average viewer and the average person that I think is probably 25 years old or younger has no idea what the significance of those games were. And I hope, and that was definitely a goal of ours, is like, tell the story of this team, but also tell the story of 1996, make people feel the culture and the time and the era and, and, and get a sense of what those Olympic Games were like and why they were so significant. Kristen, you mentioned the change in, you know, more of a focus on women's team sports in the 96 Olympics. So going back to that, I, I just have to ask, were there changes with um, broadcasting and, and what was being shown between, you know, the 92 Summer Games and the 96 that kind of helped to increase the popularity or the uh, the scope of what was being yeah. shown? 
It's a great question. And I, I honestly didn't know this until I started to research and do the work for this film, but yes. And mm. a lot of it is credited to this women's 96 basketball team. Mm. You know, they, they, they formed that team, um, 12, uh, 14 months before, before the Atlanta Olympic games. And so over the course of those 14 months, this team was not only auditioning women's basketball, but they were basically auditioning women's team sports in America. And so, you know, heading into those Olympics, there, there were different parameters for like what would be televised. And it was for the most part, men's sports or female individual sports. But after that year, um, I think that like, you know, NBC and the broadcasters saw how popular this team had become. They were on the cover of Sports Illustrated. They were on every single magazine, TV show, talk show. You know, they were guests on sitcoms. They were um, in commercials being directed by Spike Lee. Like they, they were a part of pop culture every bit as much as the men's team going into those Olympics. And so this is like a crazy story is that like at the last minute, and this is what I forget the source that told me this, but they basically swapped and made the women's um, gold medal game, the absolute last televised sporting event of the 1996 Olympics, which I think is really, really telling um, of how far that team came and how much they kind of, you know, allowed America to fall in love with them and, and, and how they did change the way that women's sports were viewed and televised and who wants to see them. Um, you know, Lisa Leslie and Don Staley and, and Cheryl Swoops became household names. Um, and so people wanted to see them on TV. Was it just kind of assumed because of the 92 men's dream team? Was it kind of assumed that the bar was super high. I mean, I I can imagine, you know, the pressure going in of trying to get a league going in itself. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, you have this historic men's team as well in 92. Um, I mean, were there kind of both pros and cons with that? Was it mostly just made it more of a pressure cooker? What do you think the impact of the 92 men's team was on this 96 women's team? Yeah, I mean, there was, it definitely had an effect. I would argue, though, that it almost, listen, like nothing was ever going to top the 92 men's dream team, right? There wasn't going to be another group of men that was going to ever top the the 92 dream team. Mm. And so I feel like they had their moment in 92, right? Like nobody knew who was on that women's team in 92. Like they were, and we we talk about this in the film, like they they felt invisible at those Mm. Olympics in Barcelona. And so I feel like, you know, heading into 96, Michael Jordan's not playing, right? And all of a sudden, there's this new group of people and and they're vulnerable and they're, they let people in and they're not diva and they're not, you know, um, surly around the media and they want, you know, to talk to the fans and connect with people. And I just think it was a really refreshing thing. And it's, it's interesting because even 25 years later, like I've, I've directed, you know, films about male athletes, female athletes, and the way that these women were just so incredibly open to sharing their story with me, it was honestly like really refreshing because I feel like sometimes when you, when you work with their male counterparts, you know, the elite, elite male athletes, it's really, really difficult. You have to go through like a hundred agents and handlers in order to even get them to sit down in the chair. And like, 
I, it was just such an enjoyable experience because like, it's like somebody gave me Dawn Staley's number and I texted her and I was like, can we do an interview? And she's like, yeah, fly down here. And so it was like, it was just so cool. And I think again, that just speaks to like these women and how approachable and, and down to earth they are. One of the most, um, compelling parts of the documentary that really stood out to me was the the section on Cheryl Swoops and her relationship with Michael Jordan. And it kind of reminded me a little bit, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is a, in, in kind of a wrong comparison, but kind of Kobe and kind of, you know, his affinity for the WNBA uh, mm-hmm. right before he passed. And um, this, you know, in terms of people, you know, this all the hype Cheryl Swoops got, and it's Michael Jordan taking notice. And then I think they, I believe there's a section where I think they played one on one, and just like Cheryl Swoops, like trash talking MJ, just pretty pretty incredible. Can you kind of, for people that didn't haven't seen the documentary, can you kind of put how big of a deal Cheryl Swoops was? Because even to me watching, I was like, man, she was a killer in, in college, and just even before she even got on the on the Olympic team, um, she her importance to to the game of basketball was was felt even before she took the floor for the olympics absolutely i mean she was the one of the first college female stars um you know in in the 93 final four she um i I don't want to get this wrong but she scored i think i want to say 46 points in the national championship game And so it was like, there was all this hype around her and obviously she had the swagger and she had the name, you know, swoops. It's like, it's the, it's a perfect basketball name. Right. Absolutely. And then she delivered. And like, I feel like sometimes when people are built up like that, it's almost like people go to watch them and they're disappointed, but she absolutely like delivered in that moment. And I think, you know, even looking back now, like she was a really special player. She was so much faster than anybody else on the court. Like her skills, if she was in the WNBA right now, like I honestly think she would be the best player. Um, Like she was just so, so good. And, you know, in that moment, another thing that obviously helped kind of elevate her, um, you know, her name and her persona was the sneaker, the shoe, Um, you know, first female athlete to have her own signature shoe, first athlete from Nike behind Michael Jordan to have a signature shoe. So there had not been like any other male athletes, uh, basketball players that had their own shoe. So I think, you know, that kind of put her on this really elite level. Um, And anytime there's like a first that's that significant, I think you kind of become larger than life. And, you know, the, the story between her and Michael, like that bond was, was real. And, you know, he sought her out when she was at Texas Tech and asked uh, her to work his basketball camp. And that's the clip that you see in the film is them playing one on one as she's working for Jordan's camp. But he was a, a huge supporter of women's basketball and of Cheryl. And it's funny because, you know, Michael, um, as a lot of athletes do, um, he requires you to, to seek his permission um, for his likeness when you show him in a documentary. And there are a lot of times that he um, denies that request. And I I emailed his, um, you know, his rep and she was just like, absolutely, like he'll do anything for Cheryl. So I think like he really did have um, this, this strong connection with her and the special relationship. And I do think it's very similar to Kobe. Like, it's funny, a lot of these women told me they're like, our male counterparts that are basketball players have never been the problem. It's the guys that are sitting on their couches 
um, that are the problem. <laughs> like, like the, the NBA players have always been our supporters and our champions, which I, I think is really interesting. Um, to that point, I want to ask you about kind of the evolution of the WNBA. Seemed that was the kickoff. I remember the first game in terms of Lisa Leslie dunking. I remember all the promos on NBC. Um, I remember, you know, I think Hannah Storm even broadcast. I think the first game, if I'm not mistaken, um, just such a such an impact when the league kicked off just through this documentary. Since I believe this was kind of the the kickoff to the WNBA forming. Um, just to your observations. I know that the the league recently celebrated their I think 25th anniversary. Um, just to just to your best recollection, can you kind of go over kind of the evolution of the league? Anything that's kind of surprised you, not surprised you? Anything that you're kind of looking for within its future in terms of kind of taking its next step in terms of its evolution? Sure. I mean, I think that the the launch of the WNBA is one of the greatest success stories in the history of sports. I think there's been some really disappointing um, kind of road bumps along the way and it hasn't been perfect and it hasn't grown in the ways that, you know, maybe people thought it would have grown in that moment right after the 96 games when the hype was really high. Um, but I think that, you know, 25 years later, it really has stepped up in the last few years and, you know, the, the, the actual level of play is out of control um, the games are really competitive. They're broadcast on ESPN and ABC. And I think the following is absolutely growing. These players are, you know, earning more money. And I think one of the most important things to remember is people watch sports and root for players when they feel like they know them, right? And so I feel like it's really important for not just myself, but other people to keep sharing women's basketball stories, right? Because if you know the players in the WNBA, you're going to want to root for them. You're going to want to sit down and watch them. You're going to respect them. And I just think that there was a time that um, that wasn't happening, uh, maybe in like, you know, the the late 2000s, early 2010s. But I think it's, it is really growing and evolving. And it's funny, I just got off the phone with Jennifer Azey, who was a subject in Dream On, um, who works for the Las Vegas Aces now. And we were just catching up after their exciting run. And she was just telling me, she's like, you know, we've gained the attention of the mainstream sports fan. And I really think that's true. I think what the Aces are doing is super exciting. Obviously, they have the support of Mark Davis, who owns the team. And I think that they're um, really exciting. I think Don Staley's doing that at the college level. So as long as you have these people that are really creating excitement and energy around um, the sport, I think it's going to continue to grow and evolve. And I'm just really excited because, like, I started working at ESPN in 2009 and never on like ESPN's main Twitter handle would there have been like WNBA parade video. And like, you know, it's been like the aces nonstop since they won the championship, you know, whatever it was last week. And I think that's that's really cool to see, um, to see that evolution. Kind of feels like missed opportunity potentially. I mean, all, all that time that you mentioned from like the late 2000s through uh, much, I would say, of the 2010s. Um, wanted to ask you just for, you know, as, as we kind of move into the modern era of the WNBA, given the research you did for this film, uh, the footage you went through, and, and just your level of knowledge, I, I wanted to ask because we hear all the time about mm -hmm. WNBA players 
playing overseas mm. um, and, you know, being able to make more money overseas than they can here in America. Was this the case as well back in the 90s, like pre and post the 96 Olympics? Or is this something where there's been more growth and interest in other countries from that 96 start point? Obviously, it's not the start point, but using it as a start point in this question. Um, has there been more growth overseas than here, or is it just completely different factors? You know, women's basketball overseas has always been huge. Like there's always been a really big following Katrina McLean and Teresa Edwards were making three, $400,000 playing overseas in 1996, which, you know, obviously you, um, yeah, that, that was a lot of money back then. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's a, it's really a shame that women have to go over there in their off season to kind of help supplement their pay that they make in the WNBA. But again, I think it's all this cycle. It's like, tell the stories, get these women's names out there. Then people are going to want to watch the games on TV and the ratings are going to get higher. People are going to want to go and see the games in person, like create that energy in that environment. Like I can't overstate like Mark Davis's support of the, of the aces is, is so important because like, that's a guy who has a lot of clout. And when he talks, people listen and he's like, people need to come watch these women play. Like this is a really, really competitive, competitive game. And I just think the more that we do that again, like hopefully women aren't going to have to go overseas to supplement, um, you know, their, their pay here, but you know, it's, it's, it, it is, it's unfortunate that they have to do that. Um, the WNBA season is a lot shorter than the NBA season. Um, you know, there are some things like that, that, um, you know, I don't think are going to change, but yeah, I mean, the, but the game over there, like I heard they're celebrities, they are absolutely celebrities. And as we all know, you know, Brittany Griner was making over a million dollars when she, um, you know, when she was playing over there in Russia. So, um, they, you know, they make a lot of money when they play overseas. Kristen, I want to ask, go shifting back to the documentary, uh, what was the most shocking thing that you learned just going through all the footage or just um, going through all the interviews? I noticed you interviewed Gino Arianima. I, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts interviewing him because he's yeah. he had so many, his fingers are just all over just the history of the, the, the WNBA, women's basketball as a whole. So yeah. was there anything that surprised you or shocked you that you uncovered that you, going into it, you didn't think that would come to the surface? I mean, there. honestly, I went into this not knowing very much beyond like the the few articles and like there really hasn't been a ton of in-depth coverage of this team. Like, of course, back in that moment, they were being covered. But I learned I learned so much about the game, about the dynamics, about what these women were dealing with off the floor. I mean, that to me was the biggest takeaway, right? Like, you know, you see these women struggling and sacrificing for the betterment of the sport, but then you don't realize that Ruthie Bolton is dealing with domestic abuse off the court at the hands of her husband. And you don't realize that Venus Lacey was in a car accident six months after the Olympic games that affected the rest of her life. And you don't realize how truly miserable Rebecca Lobo was that year. Um, and her really, really tough relationship with Tara Vanderveer. You don't realize the rivalry between Gino and Tara and how far back that goes. Um, 
you know, Carla McGee, you know, she tells a story about President Clinton that some of her teammates didn't even remember. And so I think that's the really cool part about this film. And what's really cool about 30 for 30s in general is like you take a story that everybody thinks they know and you uncover all these other layers to it. And and that's what makes it special. And I I hope that we accomplish that uh, with this project. I think I know the overall answer to this question, but I wanted to ask anyway, what is the 90s legends view of the modern day WNBA? Oh my gosh. They're, I mean, they're huge fans. Like the, the WNBA, first of all, 10 of the 12 women on the 96 team went on to play in the WNBA. Mm-hmm. And it is truly like a sorority. Um, they go back to games all the time. I mean, the documentary ends, and this isn't really a spoiler, with all of them being honored at the WNBA All-Star Game. So they're really, really close with a lot of the, the current players, and they're honestly like mentors to them. What I found really interesting is some current WNBA players and college players reaching out to the women that were in the film and to me and saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea what you did in order for me to be here right now and get sponsorships or for me to be able to play now in the NBA or, you know, all of those things. Um, you know, the, the women that are playing the game didn't realize the sacrifices that that generation made before them, which I found really interesting. Kristen, I want to ask, we were discussing earlier about um, NBA entertainment and, and all that footage. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is already out there, but I, I don't believe it is. But is there any kind of a possibility of the NBA doing something like this now with its current players, either within the NBA or WNBA in terms of just having a documentary crew and just, you know, taping a bunch of footage uh, for use this, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line for documentaries, you know, in, in the future for, you know, future basketball fans to see. Is, is that something in the works or is that kind of only was a one-time thing that took place in the 90s? No, I mean, I, I can't speak for the W, you know, the NBA entertainment sure. and WNBA entertainment folks, but I will say this, that in terms of when you look at the landscape of documentary filmmaking, obviously it's at an all-time high right now, right? Like people are just eating this content up and they want more and more and more of it. And it was different back in the 90s. And so it kind of makes me a little bit sad that like, I don't think there's ever going to be a situation where 25 years down the road, someone's going to like uncover this like wealth of material that nobody knows about. Like, I just don't think that's going to happen anymore, which makes me feel super fortunate for getting this opportunity to do this story. I think that NBA, the NBA is definitely embedded in these teams. I know they were in the wobble there, you know, they were in the bubble. And um, there are things being worked on um, on both of those stories. And um, I know that, you know, there was a lot shot of Kobe and but I just don't think that anyone's going to ever have the discipline to wait 25 years to make those films. I think those are going to like be things that come out in the next two or three years, um, which, again, you lose the, the beauty of telling a story 25 years later is like you have perspective, right? And your subjects are willing to open up about things that they might not have um, one, two, three years after um, those 96 games. So I, I think we're really fortunate that we were able to, you know, to, to get the NBA to, to allow us to use these foot, you know, these tapes and this footage. And um, yeah, I, I, again, I just feel really lucky. 
Christian, this has been awesome. Thank you very much for your time. Truly appreciate it. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you on social media and then any upcoming projects you're working on as well? Absolutely. Well, for the people that I didn't spoil the the movie too much for that are listening to this that haven't seen it, you can you can watch Dream On and the three part series on ESPN Plus. And uh, for me, uh, my Instagram is Lapis K, and my uh, Twitter is K Lapis fourteen. And I actually uh, recently took a job with a new production company called Words and Pictures, so I don't work at ESPN anymore but I'm working on some really amazing, exciting projects for them. So um, yeah, follow, follow my Twitter and um, you'll, you'll kind of get a little bit of a taste of what I've, what I've been doing. Awesome. We'll be totally on the lookout for that. Thank you very much. Thank you both for having me.